Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Charles Bissell of The Rins. We talked about Bruce Springsteen's second album, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle. We also talked about growing up in New Jersey and learning how to filter the boss through you in an honest way. We chatted a bunch about the legend of Bruce Springsteen and looking at these early moments in his career before the sound was completely codified into what we know today. We chat a little bit about Charles's upcoming solo album, so just tiny peeks behind the curtain, but of course, super excited to see what he's been working on. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment and reviews always help. Okay, I had a great time chatting with Charles, so check that out right now. Hey, Charles. How's it going? Um, doing well. How are you doing? Pretty good. Um, I guess today before we started recording, right before, uh, David Crosby passed away. So I just learned about that. Um, I, I guess I I'm telling you now for the just first time. learned about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was 81. Well, we, so, you know. Yeah. Good long life. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of like I didn't even expect to kind of like, I mean, he's like a, he was a big kind of presence for like my dad and I feel like yeah kind of started like getting my own relationship with his music you know I've always been like a Neil Young guy but kind of like really digging into the other guys and right you know so that's kind of what's on my mind today and not at all what we're talking about but, <laughs> but well yeah. still yeah. that's that's a big yeah I didn't know yeah <laughs> yeah I my relationship with him is would be more like in the middle like I was very enamored of 60s music in general when I was a kid, like a teenager. So that's like late 70s into the early 80s. I was more of a, I kind of jumped around a lot. So I don't really know their solo records once you get past those first, the ones with Neil. Mm-hmm. I didn't, but my brother had all of them, younger oh, brother. Yeah. yeah. So I did hear a bunch of them over the here and there, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that's a big deal. Wow. Yeah, I uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting too. I mean, it feels like what's kind of interesting in my head, I guess, as we're kind of shifting into what we're talking about today, is like thinking about someone like David Crosby to like Bruce Springsteen, and in my head, they feel like such different generations. But it's like we're talking about a difference of like five years from yeah. the record we're talking about uh, to to those kind of like you know seminal kind of you know, those foundational kind of Crosby records, Crosby, Stills, Nash, yeah. Young, and stuff like that. So I guess as I shift into what we're talking about, so Bruce Springsteen's second album, The Wild, The Innocent, and The E Street Shuffle, that came out November 5th, 1973. And that came out on Columbia Records. And what I'll ask is, when was the first time you listened to this record or Bruce Springsteen? Um, Springsteen... <clears throat> Uh, Springsteen actually would have been when Born to Run came out. So that was 75, I think, or 76, 75. Yeah. So I was in fifth grade, 
and just starting to sort of, um, you know, like I had a paper route <laughs> and buy my own records and stuff. And uh, that, the Born to Run song was very much on FM radio, <clears throat> you know, FM radio of the mid 70s, which is way more sort of like WKRP-ish than sort of the classic rock that it ossified into even just a few years later. You know what I mean? Like it was still looser, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And more governed by like individual personalities and DJs and stuff. So you'd hear that. I heard it on the radio a bunch. Maybe asked for it for my birthday. I don't quite remember. <laughs> I just remember my poor beleaguered father. Um, I, when I, The first time I played it, because it was like that and the Rolling Stones made in the shade, which is like some weird greatest hits sort of record. Mm-hmm. And something else were my first non-Beatles albums that I asked for or bought with my own money. And the record skipped, the Born to Run one. And so I asked him to read. He returned it on his way into work and then came back. And that copy skipped. And, you know, I probably threw some 12-year-old tantrum or whatever. And (laughs) so he returned the record and then brought it back like a third time. And only then did I sort of piece together that I just had a really, really crappy needle and turntable. And the records, the records, all three copies were probably just fine. Yeah. yeah. But once that problem was solved, uh, I just thought that that record's so cool. And obviously it's a huge, important record, Uh, you know, not just for him, certainly more important in his career than the one we're talking about ostensibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And then after eighth grade, so going into high school, we moved to Ocean City, New Jersey, which is sort of in many ways, very similar to like (laughs) the whole Springsteen thing of that time, you know, under the boardwalk, uh, you know, that sort of thing, carnival lights, whatever, all that stuff. Or at least it certainly felt that way that summer. So that summer of 78, at that point, the record, I guess, is already five years old. But I mm-hmm. heard it because there are these two older guys, they're probably like college age, who had an apartment next door to the house we moved into. <clears throat> and they played that record around the damn clock. So I heard it all the time. And to me, those songs being about sort of like certainly set in a really similar um, locale and that being all new to me, like really resonated. And then musically, I just loved it. And over the years, it's just one I always went back to. Like it always feels very much like sort of home sort of stuff of like, Mm -hmm. like resort town, Barrier Island, South Jersey stuff. Yeah. So that would have been first time I heard it. Yeah, it's interesting because I I own this record because I feel like if I'm remembering correctly, I feel like uh, I remember me and my wife meeting some lady in a parking lot and then just her being like, here, here's all my records. So she essentially just like had like every, you know, it's like essentially you'd be like, oh, this is all classic rock. But it's like, you know, it'd be like full runs of like Led Zeppelin and you know yeah. most of the runs it seemed like to a point of Bruce Springsteen so because of that now I have multiple copies of Bruce Springsteen records but right. definitely not this one and definitely not the one before you know Asbury Park um so these were like pretty I, I feel like I know I put them on but it's funny listening to this in a way that even like two years later Born to Run yeah. Because of like all the bits are there, like all the pieces of Bruce Springsteen are there, but just like 
how different of a thing this is. It's just yeah. like it hadn't been like filtered completely. Like it's it's like it's like you put totally. Bruce Springsteen through a Brita filter or something like, and that's right. what like Born to Run is. And so like kind of hearing like somebody almost like more in line with like what I would feel like not not sonically, but almost like one of my friends' records would be like, you know, where you listen to it and you're like, oh, you know, that was a choice. <laughs> you know, it's right, like it's right. like they didn't have all those kind of things. I guess they didn't have those kind of like overbearing producers or something or even just like a thing that age would give you to be like maybe we don't need everything all at once (laughs) is such an interesting thing with this record that like i feel like they don't do even two years later which is is like such a shift you know like born to run is like there's a lot going on yes yeah but it's like it's not a lot going on all at the same time which you know (laughs) and so it's it's so interesting that like I, you know, even like a thing that kept kind of ringing in my head was like, they really dropped the whole tuba thing after this record. Yeah. <laughs> tuba. Yeah. The accordion doesn't come back as much either. No. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or it does later in almost in a different context. But yeah. 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 They, they did not stick with the, the tuba company. That song in particular is, I came to love that one too, though. I didn't like it at first. Um whatever it is, a wild Billy circus story or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It feels like such a thing of that time. And I guess like, as we were saying, as we were saying at the beginning with like David Crosby, it feels like something I, I would recognize more as like a sixties thing that, that oh, kind of like the idea of, uh, I don't know why I'm blanking on his name. It's like the rock producer guy, uh, that eventually got tried for like murder or whatnot. Phil Spector. But, Phil Spector, yes. Yeah. Um, it, it feels like definitely more of like that kind of time frame of, you know, that maximalist kind of like rock and roll thing, like, you know, wall of sound kind of thing. Right. You know, and it's interesting. It's interesting to think of uh, just the idea that like people would be looking back 10 years earlier because because a lot of this, because it's like one of the things I, you know, read about Bruce Springsteen, it's like obviously that. You know, he saw like uh, Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Right. So it, it's it's interesting. It's like I don't know. Maybe maybe younger kids do. They probably do. Uh, but like that kind of idea of looking back ten years before, I feel like I'm still. I have to remind myself that it's not 2013 now. You know. It, so it's interesting <laughs> to think of like. You know, I guess that's. I'm just. I'm saying that I, I'm getting older. Is essentially what yeah. I'm saying. But like you know, maybe it's something I would recognize more if, like, I had children of my own, like, because they're probably more prone to, like, look back 10 years earlier because I feel like a lot of this record is uh, doing so long-winded way of my experience with it. Yeah. it's Well, first I should state with with this, I mean, it's how it always is for records that you find at a certain time, but there is zero objectivity on my end as far as this record. But I've never heard it in a 60s context. It's really... uh, interesting to me it's always um it's because when i discovered it and there's some things it feels quintessentially 70s it's so funny um but i know what you mean about that looking back thing and i think i think i think of this record well it's funny like with the objectivity subjectivity uh aspect of it um, it's funny how 
sometimes largely uninformed I am about some of the things that I <laughs> like the most. Like, I don't know. Like, I count The Clash's London Calling as, like, one of my favorites and something, whatever, that I musically aspire to in certain ways. But I don't know all the ins and outs and all the trivia. And similarly with this, I know some of the story that, like, when he handed this record in, they were like, what is this? And, like, he didn't make another record for a couple years, obviously. And then he had other issues after that that kept him out for another four or five. But... uh I always feel like this record is, I know what you mean by maximalist, but I th I think of it differently because to me, this is the one sort of true band record. That's how I always heard it. Mm -hmm. Even though it's largely some of the personnel is different. It's Vinny Mad Dog Lopez on drums. Yeah. And it always sounded to me like that first record, um, you know, the, the greetings one is like his sort of he came out and he's going to do like a Dylan-y thing or they were packaging them that way. And, um, and the songs lean that way and definitely lean on sort of the, the huge stories that he was sort of concocting lyrically and stuff. And then you have them sort of swinging for the fences on born to run and things are distilled down song to song. Uh, but this one in between always felt to me the way I pictured it and what I like in some ways most about it is I just picture them putting the songs together in a room before they go to record, which is um, certainly more common then. It was, you know, the, the rule in general, <clears throat> but I think even after, even after born to run, he's probably already in a more modern mindset, which is I have these songs, we have a rough template, we go in and record and you just start paring down, you know, drums get down to one pattern the bass sort of gets one sound and does one thing, maybe even, you know, in a modern sense in that you track all the basses and drums and you track all the guitars, which gives a certain consistency to the record, but also gives like, you know, a more homogenous sound track to track. And this one, like you said, is sort of all over the place. You're like, oh, of course, zither. It's actually, I think it's piano. It's not zither, but um, and tuba and accordion. And but I always it just feels to me, my hunch is, I think if I could meet Bruce and ask him that it would have been like that they really put these songs together and that it feels to me like everyone contributed to the arrangements. Like, hey, that thing you were doing on what was that chord you were playing? Like, let's make that whole extra section, that whole eighth section, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, go to that thing and I'll do this and let's play it out because all the pieces seemed dense as they are it just has that feel to me of decisions that were made before it was set to tape and that they more or less recorded what you hear that it wasn't what i picture a 60s thing and then on in a sergeant peppery way of like starting with complete bare bones and then just layering mm -hmm. in the studio after the fact i could be totally wrong but that's how i've always i've always pictured it so when they go to like an organ solo I'm pretty sure that they were playing it in clubs. I'm not sure historically. I just, it's my hunch that they were already playing these songs out yeah. and worked into the organ solo. And so that's what they tracked. And the arrangement was more or less done. Um, I do know it was recorded in a studio in, uh, in Rockland County. Cause I was for like 10 years. I taught at this guitar store, Woodside music in Park Ridge. 
So that's at the very top of New Jersey there. Okay. And like a mile up the road is you're into New York State, and that's oh, Rockland okay. County. And I was enthusing about this album one time, and they were like, "Oh yeah, nine one seven studios. It's right up the road." And I was like, "Wait, what?" Like to me, that was like that that studio where this record was made was right up the street, and I didn't know it. Um, it had been out of business, I guess, a long time at that point. But you know, the old-fashioned area code is nine one seven for that. Yeah. So county, would that that's be what it was. would that be almost like the uh, northernmost? Or I don't know if it's northern. I, my geography of New Jersey, I feel like, gets confusing. Uh, <laughs> is it like the? I'll say northern. I don't know if it's actually yeah. northern. northernmost point of New Jersey before it's New York is what that where that. Yeah, you know, like be. if that's can't even see myself like, if that's new jersey or if maybe like if this is new jersey and then new york city wraps around here yeah that's where it gets confusing but then I'm this, like if you the say rest of the state yeah. is up here so like yeah. buffalo's there and rochester's there and like albany is here but it kind of wraps around new jersey like that mm-hmm. yeah that's where i'm all i get a little confused because i'm like well technically you could be at one point in new jersey but then you know new york is down here south for people that are listening uh yeah new york city yeah yeah and i but in my head i'm like oh is that you know i just say i don't know if it means anything to anybody but oh that's like copland you know area (laughs) yeah (laughs) like the movie because i think that was like a big part of the movie was like you could almost like look over and just look into new york so a lot of it was kind of that going back and forth kind of living your life uh you know as a as a cop in the suburbs but you're a new jersey person yeah being a new york cop was a big yeah. part of that i you know um but yeah i, I would just sometimes oh that's cop land you know <laughs> in my <laughs> you know basically but, yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah i think there is a lot of that like i guess that's probably what was like so i guess you were saying that the people that live near you like this was the record you heard like a bunch um that's kind of like your first time you had heard it. So it that was uh, this record we're talking about, those people in those that apartment. Yeah, when I was okay. when we moved to Ocean City, New Jersey, which is um, wait, where are you based out of? I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh right, okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so that's like, it sort of is like a Springsteen song. It's you know, there's a bunch of barrier islands. Uh, and they all have like boardwalks and beaches and amusement piers. And um, and we moved there before I started high school. And I heard it from the neighbors that summer, in fact. I The weird part is I don't remember buying it, though. And I've had the same copy yeah. for 45 years or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I had it on. I think I made my own tape of it. Um, that's how i have like a lot of my cassette tapes i'm like i don't know where i got these like i really don't remember buying it i don't know why i have you know like uh just like random like punk tapes that was like well before technically my time but it's like somehow it's in my house it wasn't the lady in the back of her trunk because she wasn't listening to you know early jesus lizard but it's like i don't (laughs) specifically remember buying it so it's like you just kind of have these things you know i I guess it's potentially like someone left at your house and then eventually you have a collection you know yeah so that just keeps happening you trade and then it never like you never trade back uh totally yeah so i I think that that is true about this record though that this is probably like the uh if i'm kind of saying what you said correctly like this is probably the closest in Bruce Springsteen you would get to imagining him in like a small club. Like I think the other so. That's how I don't. hear it. Yeah, 
And so that's kind of, I, I can see, I definitely like see the alert in that way because it's like, I mean, it's like I can, you know, I've seen the, even the videos kind of from this era or like 75, it's like he was already like so big yeah. of an artist. It's like, I can't really imagine the idea of like seeing them in smaller rooms. It's like, I can do that with a lot of punk bands. Cause it's like, you have the pictures or you have, yeah. so even if they got bigger, you're like, I have an idea what that feels like. And it's like, I don't really have that connection <laughs> with Bruce Springsteen. He's yeah. always been the biggest thing. Yeah, you know? totally. Um, so I guess like what also I find interesting is this idea of telling stories of New Jersey. Like I'm trying to think of like other artists that potentially like really lay down the layers of like where they live, <laughs> you know? And yeah. I'm like, you know, it's like even like Bob Dylan doesn't do that because he's not like really of anywhere, you know? He yeah, doesn't totally. Try and, he doesn't try and paint that in his thing. So it's like, you know, it's like Grateful Dad aren't doing that. You know, it's like it's, you know, it's like who I wonder if you can think of any other artists that sort of like paint a picture of where they lived. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good question. I feel like it's way more common now in the last 20 years. But it's probably um, because of Bruce Springsteen. It's certainly in my own dumb songwriting. Like I <laughs> like, uh, you know, we as the Wrens, we had two and a half records in the 90s so we had an album like in 94 and one in 96 and an ep in 97 then worked on the meadowlands which is the next album for like four years i didn't come out to 2003 yeah. and it was during that one uh i felt like i could never write about where i was from in any sort of new jersey or especially south jersey ocean city sense uh because of Springsteen, because of that album in particular, and Born to Run, but that gets very New York to my yeah. ears. And um, like the river and darkness on the edge of town, I feel like kind of continue on that kind of yeah. idea of New Jersey, but in like a almost like a anywhere New Jersey. I feel yeah. like you know, yeah, it's a, he uh, gets. Yeah. I think he's getting a little more, a little less specific in it in the in sort of a goal of being more universal. I think. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's just my hunch, but. We, I remember being in the middle of making the Meadowlands, and I heard uh, Lifter Polar. Mm-hmm. Do you oh, know yeah. them? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, and later on, got to know, got to know Craig, you know, and uh, and those guys when they, because uh, we know Galen, uh, the bass player in the Hold Steady for decades, <clears throat> and so we we're I was with them, and we heard. They played that lifter puller record, and I was like, "Dag Nabbit, he's doing Springsteen. Like, why can't I?" And so, in a way, I don't think I've ever told him this. It was liberating because suddenly I was like, "If he's coming from, uh, you know, the Midwest and mm-hmm. sort of doing his version of Springsteen," I was like, "Then I definitely can." And so I. I was in the middle of writing all the words for those songs and I started steering them towards being set in spite of the, in spite of the record being called the Meadowlands, at least my songs are set in like Cape May and South Jersey where we're from largely. So that was a, it's funny. Yeah. That was my attempt to like write about where I was from, but I had to get past Springsteen to sort of do it and lifter puller got me there. 
Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. I think because um, I someone kind of mentioned kind of somewhat recently that uh, I'm a big Hold Steady fan. Um, yeah. So, so um, but someone was like, Hold Steady sounds like if you were listening to something like Springsteen, but like someone's like drunk uncle was like just talking to you in your ear while they're doing it. <laughs> and, but was was funny with listening to this because he's not completely like pulled at the strings Bruce Springsteen I was like I really saw the connection because I think I never really thought I can see the threads and I can see where Hold Steady is influenced by it but I'm like I don't feel it I never felt like he was doing a Springsteen thing until I listened to this record and I was like holy shit that is Craig Finn like (laughs) you know because there's so much like it's like he's talking in a way where somebody hasn't been I feel like no producer which I think later on will be like John Landau is his name, uh, the producer, yeah. not the director one. But uh, like uh, I think people might have been like, hey, take out a couple of those like, you know, consonants or the article there. Like, you know, kind of like paint the picture, but kind of pare it down. Or he probably started doing that to himself. But it's like so there's a little bit more of like guy doing an essay over you know the thing that i never really completely 100 percent put on the craig finn and now because of this record i can see it you know yeah it's not even i should say it wasn't even um for me is more like the lyrics and even where he's like i mean they've got a song on that record called candy's room mm-hmm. on that first li- or the the one lifter puller record that i know mm-hmm. and so like it wasn't so much like his delivery for me, it was just more the the lyric and some of the subject matter, and I can't think of any good examples now. But that's what struck me at the time and was was sort of like freeing because I was like, "All right, this can yeah. be done." I think the thing uh, that's <clears throat> interesting to think of it, I guess, this is probably where you got. It's like you may have kind of felt because I felt this way with like writing songs a lot. It's like if I almost want to do my version of Springsteen, it's like I think a Spring, Springsteen is always like honest to himself. And yeah. so it's like, you know, then your version of where you grew up in New Jersey wouldn't come out anything like Bruce Springsteen if you yeah. were being honest to yourself. Yeah, you know? totally. So then it would just be you, <laughs> you know, but it's like yeah, in your hopefully. head, you're like, oh, I'm doing a, I'm sort of doing a Springsteen. Like, it's like sometimes when I, I feel like I rip off like, you know, like a, a heavier band than my band is, I, I'm like, oh, someone's going to know. But no one would know because it's like it's synthesized yeah through me you know I, a, I think that's the hard totally. thing you arrive at yeah exactly i always sweat that stuff and i guess that's what i was getting at and and that's like the couple songs that i did sort of like in my head pictures being in ocean city or south jersey or whatever yeah once i let go of that and maybe that's what hearing the lifter puller did for me just sort of letting go of that worry yeah no one ever like comes up and says aha you clearly grew up with the Wild Innocent in the Street Shuffle. It's like, no, it's literally never come up once. Or even any sort of Springsteen thing other than a general, like you're from New Jersey and play guitars. Yeah. And thing, you know. Growing up in New Jersey, was there any, <laughs> were there any times where like, you were like, I'm at this place and Southside Johnny's playing? Was that ever like, the things that sort of like pain or those ideas that I think of and New Jersey, like how present were they in the seven, you know, or around this time or even a little after? Uh, you know, I was, I was slightly too young almost, mm-hmm. I think, 
because when I was in high school, the drinking age and therefore getting into bars was 18. And uh, my two best friends were a year older than me, and it was sort of grandparented along with them. So I missed it at 18 and 19 and couldn't legally go to bars till 21. So when I'm 21, that's 1985. So by that point, Southside Johnny is certainly no longer playing bars. He's got a couple of videos or a couple of videos to go yet on MTV sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And Springsteen is a huge institution by that point, obviously. So um, maybe that was even part of it. Like when I first heard that record, you know, if that was 78 into 79 and it was five years old then, mm-hmm. uh, I, <laughs> I was already the most backward looking, nostalgic 14 and 15 year old <laughs> in the hemisphere like i missed all the good bands that i should have seen in 1980 because i was completely fixated on the fact that i'd missed woodstock and hendrix and then records like this that had a more local sort of resonance for me um because you know at that age five years or ten years is like ancient history yeah you know and so there was a built-in nostalgia component for the south jersey that i sort of arrived at late like i got into the party right when all the cars are pulling away sort of thing um yeah so yeah with people like that by the time i could actually have gone to a bar to seen that and i think the setting you're asking about that was not long since over but had been replaced by like you know new wave bands and then later uh, a certain jersey brand of hair metal <laughs> yeah and so if you were kind of looking back at that point then, so that wasn't, were you getting into that as well as looking back or would that even be like later for you? Like, as do you feel like, I guess two questions here. Do you always <laughs> feel like you're kind of looking back at like the thing going on like five years before, if that makes sense? Uh, Yeah, but there's different reasons too. Like I'm just sort of coming out of being the at-home parent and catching up on all the stuff that happened because our kids are... 14, 12, and almost 10. Mm-hmm. So over the last 10 to 15 years, I only stumbled across a few things on radio, like driving the car sort of thing. So I'm catching up in that sense on the previous 15, 14 years or whatever. Um, and when I was in college, I was like a jazz guitar major, and that was my complete focus. So like for the whole second half of the 80s, um. I listened to like Charlie Parker and Coltrane and stuff. I then bought a Till Tuesday record, which would have been one of the other ones I would have. Remember, you were saying yeah. they usually ask for three or five. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an REM album and a Till Tuesday album for my 21st birthday. And those sort of got me back into like sort of like the Beatle thing and the Springsteen thing and the 60s thing that I had originally gotten a guitar for to writing songs and being in a band and playing, you know, making records and stuff. Yeah. And then yeah. I guess like a birth of alternative or, you know, whatnot, like I guess going into Till Tuesday and REM and then that going into college rock and so on and so forth. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, just, you know, so even like back to just like thinking about some of the song names or even just the fact that this is like a seven song record, you know, over yeah. 46 minutes. Yeah. Like it's like, like, I feel like every time it's like I've listened to it a bunch, but every time I'm like, only seven songs? And yeah. I realized that uh, there were like a couple songs that the label cut, but still at like 46 minutes, uh, 
like it feels like a complete record and it's I know in live situations like Springsteen will kind of extend things but it's like that's also another interesting thing where there's like a nine minute long song on this yeah this record. Well, that's what yeah. I mean about the live thing like it it sort of feels like these are the extended versions like mm-hmm. that's how I always pictured like they he wrote his song and his words and maybe it was set or not and then they played them out and they arranged them and the drummer did this and then they obviously made a few choices after that on overdubs on this or that thing. But um, these feel like sort of the live versions of the songs to me. That's how I picture them. It's interesting too, like thinking of the fact that, and I didn't realize this till I like sat down that uh, greetings from Asbury park came out the same year as this record. Like, you know, and I know there's like a kind of probably a delay in like how things kind of adjusted it on radio. And then as they rolled it out, but it's like, technically credited for like january like 10th of 73 oh, see that's interesting i didn't and, even realize that yeah i think i thought it was the year yeah. before but obviously they used to crank out records a lot more often than you know a couple albums a year wasn't wasn't super unusual but yeah i didn't even realize that that's so funny yeah it yeah it's it's so like quick and then even too like when we think of those kind of Moments too, which I don't, I feel like feel more common now. Um, I think it's like something you even stated where it's like Born to Run came out in 75 and then, you know, it's like, it feels like there's a gap into like darkness on the edge of town, but it's 78, yeah. you know, and it's, it's like how, how quick these kind of things, but also it's like, well, they had vinyl they could sell and they could, you know, it's like all these things aren't really like around in the same way anymore. So I, I kind of wonder, I'm like, it feels like rock bands don't, you know, put out records like as as quick as it did in this era, you know. So it's kind of interesting looking back on that. Uh, totally. You know, I think I think it's already still slower though compared to like the '60s when you're looking at the Beatles and Stones and stuff of the world and they're releasing singles and com- maybe if the '50s is very generally singles compiled into records and then by the time you get to the '60s and they're sort of doing that but cranking out full records and then they transfer to the album or transition into the sort of the album is the thing they're putting the Beatles are knocking out about two a year which is crazy you know what I mean (laughs) given that you're we're still all watching the let it be thing 58 years later or whatever well that would be 53 years later whatever you know what I mean it's crazy yeah I mean it's funny it's probably sounds funny to someone listening because it's like we have so much stuff thrown yeah. at us, you know, nowadays. So it's like we have all these other little things, I guess, that like artists do probably don't make them any money. But, <laughs> you know, like it's like, you know, at this time it was like you didn't have music videos yeah. and you just wrote and, you know, just wrote and dropped your album. Like there wasn't there weren't any kind of distractions in that way. But I feel like when you th- if I think about the output of like the Beatles, it's like what were they guided by voices? Like who's putting out two records? At <laughs> totally. Like, like, you but know, everyone sort um, of was, but it, it yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's so wild. Um, but you know, another thing kind of back to like the difference of like thinking of the E street. Right. Band. And, uh, you know, this having the, the title, the E street shuffle. Um, it's like, I feel like I can't imagine a E street band without, you know, little Stevie or Max Weinberg. Yeah. But, you know, it's so it's 
it's just kind of strange in that way like not not really a big comment about it but it, it feel it also feels different in the plane because of that totally know? the well that's uh, there's something one of the reasons um it's not so much that it's weird because because i'm how you know that much older and heard this i probably heard this record right after he made darkness you know what i mean like i remember getting the river as a new record so it was after i already had this um so it's not so much that i like this in hindsight it's why i sort of signed off as we went into the 80s one of the things is like in this springsteen he's just a phenomenal guitar player that's him on everything. Mm-hmm. Those little three note chords. I was just learning to play about the time that I sort of heard this record. And to me, he was, besides all the band stuff and the cool songs and whatever the persona was or that I imagined it was, um, he's just like this awesome guitar player. And that sort of fits with the band. And I remember when I got Born to Run, uh, being sort of thrown because the title track sounds completely different than everything else. Just sonically, it's sort of distorted. It mm-hmm. just has a completely different sound. And the drums have a different sound. And if I remember the story right, they tracked Born to Run at that same studio that this album's done in. So that 917 sound or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. Took it to the record company. And that's when he was in with that management and all that stuff. And uh, big things were starting to happen, but things hadn't gone sour yet. And I think he took this, at least as I understand it, took the single and they were like, yes, but let's do it in a real studio and you're going to get a new drummer and blah, blah, blah. So I can't remember who's playing drums, but I think on the title track, on the title track, it's not Max Weinberg. But I haven't hmm. looked at that. I have the vinyl upstairs. I haven't looked at it in a really long time. And that's one of the reasons that to what you say, it sounds like really different. Like the if you listen to the drums on on this record on Kitty's Back, listen to especially once the band kicks in and there's all those different sections. Listen to the drums, uh, in particular, just one time through, and especially the kick drum, the bass drum. It is wild. <laughs> truly wild yeah. in a really great way i think way. it's the one i'm thinking of in my head like it's there's there's one part on the record where there's like this gallop thing where yeah i'm just like i don't think i don't feel like max does no. that type of stuff it just feels like such a gallop that i'm like it's just kind of like uh you know it's like i don't dislike it but it, it kind of it's like this isn't this isn't E Street Band to <laughs> totally. me. totally <laughs> it's it's so funny because to me that is E Street Band and <laughs> And it's sort of why when I, and I know I heard Born to Run first, but that's why I was so like blown away by this record. I was like, wait, it's so, the very things you were saying in the beginning that it was sort of more considered and edited down and sort of made it, made distilled, you know, down to the good parts, not like everything at once. Um, In a way, that's how I sort of picture Max Weinberg. And that was part of it. Like he, as he comes in to be the drummer, I pictured Springsteen and whoever that manager was, Landau or whoever, I can't remember, um, sort of making these calls like, okay, we want, you know, we want something that'll, it's a little less wild, that it gives a steady beat, that's going to be on the radio, but still has the energy in the vocal and like 
the screaming sax solo, you know, that they were beginning to um, smooth some of those edges. And so that this album, it just sounds to me like the drummer is like doing his thing because that's what he did in the rehearsal room. And then they set it up and record it. And only after the fact, you're like, that's the craziest kick drum pattern I've ever heard that doesn't repeat once. Yeah, I think the drummer on uh, Born to Run is Ernest Boom Carter. Oh, that's right. Yeah, see, it was someone different, but it wasn't uh, Vinny Mad Dog Lopez either. Yeah, yeah. And I I watched a, uh, it's kind of, I think it was in recent years, because I think the only time they played, uh, they probably did around this time, but in recent years, like playing this album in full, it said it, they did it in like 2009 at Madison Square okay. Garden. They played like the whole record. And there's a video, and I'm not sure if it's from that that point, where it's Max and uh, Mad Dog <laughs> Mad Dog playing together at the same oh, awesome. time, like for Rosalita. Because um, they would, they closed with Rosalita, I think up until like 85. Right. Like that was like, you know, because... Because it's like when you think of, when I think of these songs being that you know I listen to like later Bruce Springsteen kind of more often, it's like I don't recognize like any of these as like uh, set list mainstays, you know. Um, so so it's kind of interesting that I mean that that song specifically like stayed in their repertoire for like so long in their career past this record. Yeah. You know? So see, yeah. I don't really know. I don't know a set list too well, but I think that. It's probably just coincidence that when I've stumbled on whatever, I don't know, a live thing or something, I have heard some of these, uh, like Sandy, and I guess Rosalita. I can't think what else. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not sure how often they were playing. I mean, probably in this time frame they were, but like Wild Billy Circus (laughs) Story. See, I I bet a dollar they never (laughs) played that live once. I never even remember that song. Yeah. I picture this song as three, three. Uh, sorry, this album is three songs aside, but it's actually there's okay. four on the first side. Yeah, I mean that that's like a, you know it's like I give it grace because it's you know seventy three, yeah. but like kind of hearing the story and kind of like and he paints it well, but it's like hearing like you know the the words he uses in it, you know, uh, you know he just I mean he says magic, you know, like it, over uh, and see, over again heard in the song. So Oh right, and it's in like, the circus and it's, one, you know, yeah. And I'm like, well, he is painting the story yeah. of the thing. It's just you know, time change. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but I'm just like, you know, the first time I really sat down and listened, I'm like, wow, that's you know, okay. He's doing it. all right. <laughs> um, you that's know, so funny. and then like the tuba kicks in, and I'm like, oh fuck, we're really yeah. doing it. You know, like it's uh, you know, it's so interesting because it's like, I think it's like I can, I don't ever think of like tuba as being like a rock instrument it really does feel like it's like guys picked off the street like i know too <laughs> and they're like all right then come in you're in the e street band you know like he, he clearly like does other things because uh some of the i think most if not all of the tuba playing is gary yeah. talent uh who's been with them since day yeah. one um so you know <laughs> gary talent plays a mean tuba <laughs> and it's it's prominent on at least two of the tracks on this seven song record it- yeah. Wait, which is, what's the other one that it's on? Because it's been so long um, since I heard it. I think it might be on Sandy. I, I didn't write that down, but it's like, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it's like that. in Wild Billy's circus well, story. Yeah. It's funny because like even as a, like, like I said, when I was a kid and I first heard the record, um, or first got the record, 
And again, it's just really weird that I can't remember where I got it from, considering it's such a favorite. But um, yeah, I did not like that story, which just, or that song rather, which just seemed at the time, and I think I would still say it now, just seemed like a sort of like a genre exercise. Like he was like, hey, I'll do this. You know, in the same way that McCartney does these throwbacks or like in the Beatles years, and I guess since, would do throwbacks to like dance hall music or whatever, some old fashioned musical form that he would also sort of imitate the sound of. And that's what I sort of chalked the <laughs> the tuba up. This is the longest conversation you're probably going to have about tuba on the whole podcast. Yeah. But yeah. so even then, I even as a kid, I was like, ah, this is it's just him checking off this box that he felt he had to now I sort of look back and and sort of see that song I guess as him still figuring out what it was you know he must have felt he must have felt um that he had real rock band going bar band sort of thing going on this record and so wanted something acoustic and I can see a bunch of <laughs> I can see a series of choices leading that end with tuba <laughs> like well gary what if instead of playing bass uh you got your tuba right <laughs> you know that sort of thing yeah rather than um that but it i think they also probably just picked it because he's got this circus story for whatever reason that clearly it just seems like uh trying stuff out you know what i mean it's similar to his songs yeah, yeah. it's a whole there's scenes and characters and I guess a story. It's hard to remember, but it's clearly not his. Like he's not, mm-hmm. he is not circus folk, you know, and it's not set in the boardwalks or carnivals or the jetty or whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just, yeah. I always thought of it. Yeah. I think it's almost like I, if I imagine like if I have to put it into New Jersey, it's like, well, when the circus comes in town, you enter their world. Right. You know, so it's like they came, it'd be like, if this is all a story of one thing, then it's like, you know, it's like this feels out of place because it's like you're going into the circus, which I guess would probably, I feel like that would be the explanation. Like if anyone ever asked right. you it, like, you know, like why, why did you write a circus song, Bruce? <laughs> you know? Uh, and then they're like, well, you know, as a kid, they came in. So it's not my story, but I am, I yeah. imagine that it's how they felt coming into like our you know, totally. Yeah. Once again, the, you know, circus and tuba. This is the uh, the longest you'll hear about it on the pod. But I do <laughs> like those moments in records where I, I love the fact that they haven't figured it out. Yeah. You know? And I love those eras and bands. And I feel like I, I bring this up every time. But I, I always think of one specific TSOL record. I know I referenced this on the last episode I recorded, uh, so it's funny. But there's one TSOL record called Change Today. Okay. And it's before they became like a hair rock band. You know, um, it's like those punk bands were shifting from being kind of L.A. punk bands into like hard rock bands. But there's an in between, you know, and those kind of moments and like, you know, any kind of musical movement before it's like completely codified. I mean, this is exactly that. It's like before Born to Run, you get to see somebody being, I mean, in this case, it's like do we put tuba on a song? Yeah, totally. Know? But it's like, it's Born to Run, Bruce wouldn't put tuba no, on No, that's song, the difference probably, those you know? couple years and some yeah. external... Uh, or traveling with the tuba. <laughs> yeah. We'll do tuba. <laughs> Hearing that tuba for the previous two years meant no tuba for Born to Run. Uh, yeah. I think also, 
Yeah, I know what you mean about that figuring out thing. And I, I, I think as far as the lyrics and stuff go, like the whole story and stuff, um, I always think of it as the, the constellation effect, which is like, you know, from here, the stars seem to be in the shape of a bull or, a, you know, <laughs> or an arrow. But of course, they yeah. aren't actually. They're billions of light years apart from any other perspective. And I think so much of this, I mean, you know, like with, with your own stuff, I'm sure, certainly I run into it, you sort of do something sometimes because you just need another song. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. so you put another song out there and only in hindsight, it's like, well, it sort of fits into the whole concept in this way. And it's like, I think you just need another song and it seemed like it could have a tuba. <laughs> and, and, and here well, we are. It's interesting <laughs> too, if you, if you look at like rock history, yeah. it's like those one extra songs. I mean, it hasn't worked for me, but like those, that one extra song ends up being like, I don't know when Goo Goo Dolls go completely that way. Totally. You know, it's like, oh, I have this other song. And then it, that ends up being the one that makes you the go hit. platinum. But I think you know? if I was, and, you know, if you or I were in the room when they pulled out Wild Billy and the tuba, that we would have known, rightfully so, that that was not the song. <laughs> that was not going yeah, to be that's the not, one. Yeah. This is going to put you on the map, Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, in another kind of thing that I was watching a video today, uh, just kind of like thinking of the idea of like finding who the idea of the boss is, is there's videos out there of like, he really liked wearing this really big beanie at this time. One that like was like, oh yeah. Like, all I could think of is like Mushmouth from you know <laughs> yeah. Fat Albert in the gang. Like it was yeah. huge. Like I, I guess he just had like still kind of big bushy yeah. hair to keep it out of his eyes. But I'm like, that doesn't seem like the boss wouldn't wear that knit cap now. And you know? well, I don't think he's the boss until after that. Like, and that's yeah, that's part of why this record seems so quintessentially seventies to me. Like it's like the opening guitars and the, um, what do you call it? The clavichord thing in the beginning. That, is that what it is? That's in the opening with the guitars of that first song. All that stuff. Like between that and that hat you're talking about and the bell bottoms of the band photo on the back where they're, they look like they're in front of one of their houses in Asbury park. You know, in like 1972, it just seems super 70s to me. And I think that's why yeah. I, I thought of it that way. I'd never even really considered the 60s part of it. But like you're saying, that's the 60s. It's only three years before that record's done. And, you know, those, you know how it is. Like you're always sort of catching up one way or another, even if just like you're, you're playing. So if you're the keyboard organ player, the bass player you're undoubtedly still like coming to terms with the records that just, you know, some Motown record that came out five years before or whatever, and incorporating mm -hmm. that into your playing in this Jersey guys record you're recording now or whatever, you know what I mean? In 1973. Yeah. The, the record, you know, the record as a whole has like a swing that I'm not used to Springsteen having. Like, it's like, you can tell of the things that he's influenced by, but kind of like, Putting him in like a funky sort of territory is not really what I would would do with Bruce, but this record yeah. has it. You know, this is like the funkiest it, he ever got. <laughs> yeah. Before uh, yeah. he was the boss, he was yeah. funky. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, because I think where where they called him the boss was uh, when he was in um, like he before that he had that band called S Steel Mill, right. uh, and he was the guy that 
would pass everybody their money at the end of the night, so they were would call him the boss. And I think it was Clarence. Oh, so uh, they were who, calling him who nicknamed from him way back then. They were calling him, but it wasn't. Yeah, it was like kind of just more like, oh, he's the right. boss, you know, kind of like you know, probably even almost like a. Uh, taking the yeah. piss out of him, you know, kind of like, you know, because he's yeah. a leader kind of thing. It didn't seem to be completely like a positive right. thing, <laughs> you know, but like, uh, but, you know, just kind of became His like a thing. thing. It almost sounds like it's like one of the managers were like, wait, what was yeah, that? Totally. And like if there was the movie of his life, and we're like, what'd you call him? <laughs> See and that then again. Like, and he stubs a cigar the, out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're probably right. I didn't know it goes back that far. That's funny, though. But you, it's something I think about a lot. Especially with the Wild Bill, just to go back to that for a second, or not even specifically, but um, when I was saying I can't hear this record objectively, um, I've always sort of had this definition of like being a geek about something. I know there is a set definition. I can never remember it. But is Mm -hmm. like I consider myself sort of a guitar geek. Like I'll watch YouTubes of like really good guitar players. I've been working on my guitar playing again for the first time, seriously, in a long time. And I always sort of thought of that component as being like, it's an ability to focus on this one topic and sort of ignore all the other stuff. You know what I mean? So you can watch some YouTube uh, disappear into some YouTube hole of various guitar players who might be playing music necessarily that you're not into. It's almost like a, it's more like a sport and you're, it's not even a sport. You're just, I find myself focused on just that thing and I'm able to, sometimes look past the music that I wouldn't choose to listen to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I sort of always think about that with artists too. Like I consider myself like a sort of a Todd Rundgren geek and especially like the eighties version of utopia, which is like a very power pop thing. But in doing yeah. that, it's because I'm able, I just completely disregard songs like burn, 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 which might have the worst lyrics ever committed to a recorded medium be and that's what i sort of think of geekness as like if you're a springsteen geek or if you're like a todd rundgren geek you're able to somehow see only the good and just completely disregard like the misses or whatever um yeah. and that's how i think of that yeah. song like when you when i told you about this record i literally never think of the wild billy uh the circus story one I was like, oh yeah, that is on there. <laughs> like, because I'm comp- yeah, you just think of it as I think yeah, of it as yeah, three yeah. songs aside, mm-hmm. really long, and blah blah blah. And I always forget that that one's sort of like a little appendix that hangs down. Yeah, I, I mean, I think about that with like records that it's. I guess for me, like you know, like punk records where it's like I this was like the first time I feel like I had ever heard punk. So it's someone's like, if they kind of go, why did you yeah. like that? It's so at that point, all these years later, it's so coded into just who you are that you're like, you're not able to sort of like break it apart and have this yeah. distance with it because it's just been with you. It's, you know, it's, it's someone being like, why, do, but why do you like your brother? Yeah, totally. You know, and you're like, you're like, I don't even know if I do, <laughs> but you know, it's like, it's just yeah. there, you know, uh, that's, a, that's what it kind of feels like. It's like, it feels like when I think about like Operation Ivy, it's <laughs> like, it's like water to me. I just, you know, it's just one of the first yeah. things I ever heard. So I don't know. I mean, it's like if I heard something that sounds like it in 2023, I'd probably, I might be like, Ew. yeah, but you know, I wouldn't know, you know, it's like you kind of, you put these kind of blinders yeah. on with it. I guess that even makes it where you just forget the wild Billy circus. Uh, totally. Yeah. You know, I, it just becomes the record you want it yes, to. Like, that's uh, part of like it. you were, yeah. you know, 
Yeah. And I, I think about that too with like, uh, there's certain bands, um, well, like that era of kind of like Todd Rundgren, but I think about even like Yes and stuff from that yeah. time frame or like, um, and it's like those, it's like, I understand that I should be really diving into like the seventies ones. And I, I've enjoyed them when I have, but I'm like, I find myself like more drawn to like, uh, nine Oh one, two, five. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, because of like that pop rockness, it just feels like something I'm more like it, that production style yeah. is like what I remember, like as a, just a little kid, like just hearing all the right. time. So it, it's comfortable. So you don't really have any way where you're breaking it apart. And then someone's like, you know, that was a bad era for the band. <laughs> you have and to be corrected. Like, yeah. Wait, but like recently someone told me, uh, and I never thought about it. It's like, I know that Asia is a cheesy right. band, but someone was like, that's on heat of the moment. That's one of the worst guitar solos. And I was like, shut, <laughs> shut up, like shut the fuck up. You know? And I was like, you know, I couldn't objectively do it. And then I just was like, oh, I, I guess I really need to go back and listen to it as just being like, this is not a great solo. And I was like, oh, I see it. But I just, it wasn't that in my head. It was just yeah, something completely different. No, totally. You know? I'm not a... So, I, because I was older, I was in my 20s by the time that stuff was coming out. I'm not a big Asia fan, but I wasn't really against them. I sort of was rooting for uh, like Steve Howell to become rich and famous. Uh, because I actually, yeah. I was 16, I guess, when Drama came out, the Yes album. So I'm like the one mm-hmm. person that really loves their sort of new wave prog rock like of drama so it's got like that i am a camera and all those songs um which is yeah even it's even a more isolated little cul-de-sac in the yes thing because it's not the 70s stuff and it's not the big hits of the 80s and like asia and all that stuff it's that really is like like i was saying earlier it is one of those things where it's like that time in between and so if you happen to be the right age that that when you you know I guess everyone's always the right age for something that's in a transition like that, whether it's like, you Mm -hmm. know, different eras of hip hop or parts of jazz or whatever, or that sort of thing. And like, whatever you would call that rock. I don't know. Um, Yeah. It sort of gets in there and you can't get it out again, nor can you hear it the way it really sounds to everyone else. You know? Yeah. It's funny when it's like things where I, there's like we realize I realized recently like my uh, bandmate and I've been in a band with him for over ten years where I was like you're an REM guy right you know but then it's like I'm like why we just haven't talked yeah. about this but you know somehow it's like I guess I was like I don't there he doesn't like stuff kind of like that because it's like uh, he, at one point he was like. I, th- I don't know if this was a specific band, but he was like, I don't really like Wallflowers. All I can think of is like it being on it, like when I was working at a record yeah. store or w- whatever it was. And I, I can't think of it objectively. Yeah. I just think of it at being all the time. And people ask me like, hey, do you have this in stock? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so he's like, he's like, I, I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, that's like the other side of that objectivity. That's true. Where it's like, if you worked in retail, like, you know, people will tell me like, I don't like that Paul McCartney Christmas Christmas song, but I'm like, well, I feel like the first time I hear it in a season, I'm like, the song. I love awesome. that song, but yeah. And then you have yeah, to hear. Totally. I love that song, but I'm like, oh wait, that's right. I don't work in retail anymore. That's true. You know, that's all like, <laughs> you know, it's true. It's also like, 
I mean, a general movement, or at least I, it appears that way to me, over the last, I don't know, in the modern internet or of the last 10 to 20 years or whatever, of sort of revising some of those, you know, it's now cool to like many things that it was not cool to like. Maybe there's, there's you know, maybe Nickelback or something is not there yet, but, you know, I think it probably in, is, but, <laughs> you know, is, like, yeah. I think it's a general change about sort of an effort to be less mean, even as the world becomes more mean. But it's also sort of been like, um, you know, we were talking about looking back, you're talking about looking back like 10 years. And I've always sort of shorthanded it to 20 because I always feel like, Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe practically like those musicians were looking back a few years because we're always doing that as musicians. Um, But cycles sort of always feel like they move in, you know, like the 70s love of the 50s. I, I'd agree. I, I think it is usually and, a 20. And part yeah. of that's just because what you hear as a kid, you know, if you're 10 or 12, and then by the time you're in your late 20s and you've got a band, or you're the A&R person signing bands, and so those things sort of flip around all at once, both in the people making it and the people writing about it or the people signing it at labels or whatever. That's, you know, yeah, like it yeah. has to do with like just human life cycle of, getting through school, getting a job, and then enacting your preferences in whatever it is you are doing. Yeah, I think it definitely, like, works in, you know, those kind of cycles like that. I I have this, like, ongoing thing where it's like someone will mention a band, and then I'll be like, uh, you know, there's worse things. (laughs) And then then I think that I'm like, I feel like there's certain touchstones where I would have, you know, however many years before I would have been like, I yeah. hate that. But now I'm just like, I, the, the thing I feel like I keep saying is like, I struggle to remember what I hate anymore. Musically. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, and I think that's a good that place is. to be, but it's like, you know, it's like, I feel like there was a time frame, you know, however many years ago where it was almost like you just hate something for the sake of hating or, or potentially I'm just thinking back when I was like 20, <laughs> you I, know, uh, you yeah. know, it's, you kind of soften, or you should. Yeah, hopefully. I think the '90s in general were sort of like that. It felt that way to me, even being more or less adulty through the '80s. Um, it sort of felt that that's that's sort of what defined the version of cool, which is you know whatever, always a moving thing. Yeah, for that period in particular was sort of making clear what it is you hated musically and sort of just for the dumbest reasons. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Just just aesthetically, as opposed to like maybe a 60s thing where you're like, you're part of the problem, whereas there's a political uh, position in not liking, I don't know. I, I can think of no examples. But like by the 90s, it was just because it wasn't cool or something. That's what it felt like. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think like... um it's like if you were part of like a movement that was like kind of, I guess like, let's say anti hippie, it's like then kind of looking back then potentially like the children kind of born in the seventies looking back, they might not it probably look too fondly at like, well, I guess like as we do now with like Ted Nugent, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like he, he hasn't kind of aged no. well, you know, and that thing, but it's like, yeah. But it's like, I think there, you know, there was definitely 100% a time frame and like rock where stranglehold was like, everything to a certain type of like rock dude oh yeah so it's kind of interesting like how those things kind of cycle you know 
um yeah or like i don't know pat boone or something <laughs> being like you know but it's like at some point that was the touchstone yeah. you know? so i yeah. i taught guitar um when i was teaching that music store so that was like more or less the 90s it was the end of the 80s to the end of the 90s and it was sort of a reminder of you know we always sort of say like a generation is 20 years and stuff but it was a reminder that in a way culturally a generation's like four years tops because when you're 12, you're in a completely different culture than the 16-year-olds. And by the time you're 16, you don't want anything to do with it. That's old. And you found your own things. And you have no interest in what the 12-year-olds are doing. Because I just saw it all the time, like that transition. The I had like 50 students a week or whatever. And most of them were high school. So you sort of saw them like either follow whatever was on the radio or whatever or sort of find their own little thing and either is okay, but you saw them stake out their little territory. And when you're like, even just in a way to get by in the job, you're like, um, Hey, do you want to learn this song? You know, because you've been teaching that song and it's reliable for many students as a way to get GC and D down for the past five years. And they're like, yeah. uh, I don't know that one. You're like, Oh, you, you know, Guns N' Roses, it was like, I hate Guns N' Roses, and I've got to convince you of this. Like, I, it was just funny how quickly it disappeared yeah. sometimes, like things that were monolithic. And so I, I always sort of feel like a generation is super short in a way, you know, when you latch onto those things. Yeah. Did you feel like, did you have that own kind of experience with uh, Bruce Springsteen where did you feel like, because I've had this conversation with other people, there's like a time where it's still their favorite record. But they feel like there was a time frame where they almost had to like forget that it was their favorite record or kind of yeah. like move into like a different phase. So did you ever feel that with Bruce? Like, uh, you know, as I say, I'm on a first name basis. Yeah. <laughs> I still have to call him the boss. Um, yeah, the boss. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I did the same thing with the Beatles. Like they were my first thing. And I had eventually I had all the mm -hmm. records. And then eventually I gave them all away because... I sort of no longer need to hear them. And that's way before streaming or anything. When, if you gave away the record, you no longer had it. I mean, they're still pretty ubiquitous. And it was the same thing with Springsteen, or at least with this record, because like I was saying, we agreed to do this and then we were like, okay, we'll do this record. And I've been meaning to go back and listen because when I popped it on earlier tonight as I was getting ready, I realized I can't even tell you when the last time was I heard it. It could definitely be over 20 years but in my head yeah. it's sort of in this vaulted position and i've run into this before where when you do go back you're like oh this one aside maybe from the circus story still holds up for me but uh yeah i didn't need to hear it for a long time and probably didn't i would rediscover i remember i remember i used to like work out to it in the late 90s so I kind of went through another phase of listening to it. I like dubbed it on cassette and I would put it in there. That's actually when I no first noticed the crazy kick drum in Kitty's back. But then, because uh, <laughs> in that little speaker, it was like. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot because it's, <laughs> it's just a person playing, which is, to me, it's completely valid and exciting. It's like Keith Moon drums versus other drums you know he's just gonna play and it's almost like following the flow of the song rather than this is my rigid beat and even my rigid beat that's gonna um 
go in this next section or whatever, which is yeah, sort of you know, the drums. It's sort of weird. The drums are so prominent now in recordings, you know, because of technology and dance music and hip hop and and the ability to record them and the ability to not have to cut out low end for vinyl and all that stuff. These things all come together. And yet drums to a certain extent because of looping and time aligning and aesthetic taste and stuff are sort of boxed in, in a, in a weird way. Like no one, few people like get to play per se, you know, and, and that's, so I don't even listen to this record, the one we're talking about, um, that way I'm listening to them all follow the contour of the song, which also I sort of, you know, that's another thing with like Springsteen's seventies sort of music, especially it's not even simply verse and choruses and bridges. And even when it is, it's that weird, um, old fashioned version of songwriting I, uh, let's see, how could I describe it? I, I feel like I first learned to play a song in the old REM template, which is four measures, one chord each bar, and that repeats four times. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm thinking old, meaning like murmur and reckoning and that sort of stuff. And he's much more of that, like an old Elton John song, like early 70s Elton John, or, you know, many common songwriters, which is you have these lyrics and a melody and you go to the four chord and then back to the one and then to the four chord again, but then to the five and then to the one and to the five and then to the six and then to the, you know, and you just sort of keep cushioning this longer melody as opposed to writing a chord progression first, putting some catchy melody on top of it and adhering lyrics to that or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is where I start seeing too, that it's like, there is like a little bit of, uh, because when I think of that, I think of like James Brown or something like somebody that like in a, in a moment in a show, that kind of soul thing where uh, they're kind of they're potentially responding off of the crowd. And there's a lot of that on yeah. this record where it's like we're going because maybe the bass player starts playing really hard. So we're kind of yeah. follow that or like it seems people are excited. So we're going to extend this part over here, which is common in rock music, but not not in really modern senses, especially when you get to like modern. Yeah. Modern albums. Yeah. Like, and you know, so it's like to be able to kind of hear those kind of testaments on a record and feel like also a record's not like to a click, like born to run. It's like, there's, there's probably, there's probably a click, you know, like it's like, I, I don't know if (laughs) I'm not like drum minded in that way, but I'm like, I can't find it on this record. (laughs) (laughs) Like it feels like it probably would bet a thousand dollars. There was no click there. Like, yeah. yeah. Which is what I love about it. It's funny. Trivia aside. I remember having conversations real similar to this at the, friend that I worked with is literally like 40 years ago or almost. And he pointed out that in Born to Run, you know, when they come out of the sort of bridge, the they're holding that. And you hear Bruce in the background going, what does they fall? And they go back into it. He counts in a completely different tempo than the rest of the, it's like, what does they fall? 
the highways jam <laughs> you know like it's yeah and yeah. uh and ever since i can never not hear that now in the background when he does that yeah but it probably was to oh, a click but his yeah, vocal wasn't you know it's an in-between period especially in that song yeah so so they potentially like kind of almost like taped it together to go back in but it's like if you counted his his one two three four it's not really like what they were on in that no moment. or they did that yeah. thing where like you know in a previous take or they punched in the whole second half of the song or they took another take mm-hmm. and like a whole other version of that song and appended it to the first half of another one so he's counting in a version that did go too fast but they like the count in yeah and you can hear it in the background the yeah. feel the feel of That's it yeah that kind of idea of like feel versus like it technically being like right yeah. or wrong it's like you know, uh, that's it's such a hard conversation, and I think I don't know if it completely comes to like listeners' age, but I feel like younger people always tell me because my band has had troubles with the idea of like being yeah. click, and we, we've we've been beaten over the head <laughs> with it, and so we're like willing, we'll go in there and we're screaming and we're crying and we have it on, you know. But like younger people, I feel like it's like it's like click or nothing yeah. for them. But we've just, we're, they're dragging us by, you know, by our ankles telling us to do click. <laughs> and we finally have gotten there. And I'm way too old to admit that. <laughs> but I feel like so much of the music I love and like these kind of records, like, didn't have it. And then, like, you know, a lot of the punk stuff or early, like, alternative, yeah. like, it doesn't have that feel to it. And I think that some of the feel gets lost. But I think when you say that to someone that's like, 23 they're like okay right <laughs> feel yeah. you know you know um so so you know it, it's such an interesting kind of shift uh, you know with that that kind of feel and drum conversation yeah. to a click that i feel like i also have a lot of uh, these conversations on the pod totally i you know. think yeah i sort of think that and yeah i know what you i know what you mean <clears throat> i i think the thing that's changed is that when we, when you and I, and you know, um, are talking about playing to a click, and even the necessity of playing to a click, what we're sort of implying is that we put these songs together without a click in the rehearsal room or basement or whatever, and now we're going, mm-hmm. we're doing that step where we go in the studio and make it official, and in that context, now you have to play to a click to make a record that goes to a click, but, and then the when you present it to someone like our fourteen-year-old, he's like. Oh. What are you talking about? This song feels great because this Lil Nas X song does feel great. And the difference is they're making their initial musical choices of loops and drum sounds to a click to begin with. They're not trying to clickify something they put together loosely and felt right in the rehearsal room like you and I are doing in a band or whatever. Yeah, we're having to like cram yeah, it into that They're context. writing note yeah. one is on a grid. So the choices they make are the ones that actually already work when the... You know what I mean? Like where it's completely locked in. That's my thinking is that it's not click good or bad. It's that if you start with one and you like everything you've come up with and you've written a song that works for you on a click, you know what I mean? As opposed to yeah, trying to click. It's definitely something. Yeah. I feel like I've, you know, as you know, pandemic happened and everything and home recording uh, personally, like I, I got all my gear because it was, I couldn't go to practice yeah. for a while. And so it was like, Oh, I understand yeah, it. Now. Totally. <laughs> you know, because it was like there was so much of my time frame of being in bands was just dudes yeah. in a room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so it's like when it shifts to like, you know, you write it outside of the room and present it to other people, which I know people have been slightly comfortable with for about 
10 years or more now, depending, you know, but it's like, it's so much easier now. You can get a focus right for like, you know, what, yeah. 50 bucks or something used. And, you know, so setting things to a click, even when we're talking about guitar yeah. music is uh, a lot different than it yeah. used to be. Uh, but yeah, I mean, before, you know, I, I, I let you go. I mean, the, you know, the kind of question I guess I would ask then is like, I think you, you answered it earlier, but do you feel, do you still feel like Bruce Springsteen and like the music you're writing or is it something kind of a little bit more distance for you? Um, <clears throat> I, uh, well, weirdly the songs I'm working on now for completely different reasons, I've thought of um, often in relation to this record in that uh, a few of them are what what you might say maximalist. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on, although it tends to be more sequential, like this thing, then this thing, then this thing, as opposed to necessarily um, what I've done a lot in the past, which is just adding another thing. So you actually have six or seven plates in the air or whatever at any one time. So weirdly, I have been thinking of a lot. It's weird that I haven't listened to it again, but um, thinking about this record in particular, uh, as far as, and I say it's totally different in that there is no band. It, as much as we were talking about how I think of this as being them in a rehearsal thing and the organ player is like, hey, what about that thing? And they all sort of go with it, which is the best part of like having a band to put your songs together. Mm -hmm. All these songs of mine were just me tinkering around. But what I ended up with was, because of that, was creating whole sections out of like a a different song's drum loop or something. And then over a very protracted period of time, you sort of end up with like more like the New York City Serenade or more like... Um, Kitty's back or something where it's like this section, then this, then down to the guitar breakdown. And then this, you have all these sort of longer forms for better and worse. I don't know. Yeah. Like when I think of uh, even like the first track on Meadowlands, like the house that guilt built and then into like the second thing, those kind of layers that, you know, you all or potentially you put on there that, uh, those kind of layers that kind of start and then just end and then another part kind of starts. I, I, I love that kind of that thing of the layering, I guess that would have been a little bit more prominent at the time. Uh, potentially. I'm not sure if y'all were using like pro tools around that era or if some of it was other kind of like analog tracking, but just kind of thinking about that in terms of like layering that I've witnessed you do in your music. You oh, know? Cool. Um, yeah. Thank you. Those were, <laughs> those were, uh, worked on that. We tracked that record. We did put all the songs together, at least as a, um, some were complete, um, and others were just sort of skeletons, uh, winter through spring of 99. And then I basically overdubbed stuff through the end of 2002. So into, or into 2003, sorry. <clears throat> So it was almost almost to the day. It was like four years. So a lot of those songs are more like what I'm talking about here, which is even if the skeleton was um, the original band track for the most part, uh, it was all layers and overdubs added later. later. Um, it wasn't played that way in the basement. The exception is, a, is that second song, which is called Happy. That's more or less 
the band arrangement. So Greg's got a guitar part on that. Everyone's playing basically as is. Like that's the only one. And then the last song that Kevin just played on piano. Everything else was sort of done after the fact, but it was pre-computer, at least for us. It was on ADATs, if you know what those are. Okay. Uh, so yeah, digital yeah. audio tape and 8-track on VHS. It was like the worst of computer and the worst of tape into one in one yeah. dynamite format. Yeah, just those, I, I, it kind of sticks out of my mind because I love these things that, I. it's like I wouldn't want to, <laughs> so while talking to you it makes it also weirder where it's like technically someone would almost call it a mistake where it's like the overdub kind of clips yeah. at the end and then you know but it's like i love that because it feels it's weird that it's like an overdub but it like it feels right. real you know it's like in a live setting you would potentially almost like turn off your guitar too quick and you're like oh i usually let that right. sustain but that kind of yeah. clip into it like that those are a little those are moments that i think like doing the home recording like i guess like what we've been saying is add in add back in that kind of feeling that a band would have you know that maybe the organist going on too long yeah. that kind those kind of moments you know that home recording allows i always sort of i always sort of think of um you know if you and i got together and played you're or if anyone saw us playing they're seeing two people and there's a whole level of communication beyond just the noises that are coming out of our amps or microphones you know the whole visual component but even a social one and emotional on the animal level we all read our faces at and that sort of thing and divorced of all that i'm always on the lookout of grabbing those sort of moments and keeping them like spring you know like the boss yelling one two three four like they clearly they probably could have muted it but they chose to keep it because it does sound exciting he's calling this thing in and it makes it seem it's hinting at what's to come even if it's just a second and a half later rather than if they just and just hit it you know what i mean so yeah, yeah all those things i tend to think of it i tend to think all this stuff way more like painting which is like you know the abstraction it's all abstract it's not really happening and those speakers are i want to load as many things in there or the appropriate number of things that sort of create the illusion that someone's actually there doing it um <laughs> that a band that never existed is playing a song that never happened in a room that isn't there. So I usually summarize it because after the overdubs, you know, that none of that ever happened, or at least on our record, except for yeah. one song, none of it ever happened. It's all sort of in sleight of hand. And I know the song's sort of done from my end, especially with mixing and everything, you pair whatever down where <laughs> it sounds weird, but I was like, I wish I was in that band playing that song because I, you know what I mean? It never happened. Like those yeah. guitar parts came three years after the song was tracked or the melody changed all these times, the chord progression is different. But when it's done, there's like this weird creation of a room with people playing in it. If it works out and comes out half decent that you sort of wish <laughs> that you were actually part of, even though you are, you might be playing almost all of it, but you can't do it all at once. And it never actually happened. It isn't a photograph of an event that happened. It's a painting that you've created one poorly chosen layer at a time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like, if you think of like paintings, it's like what makes a painting feel like it's done. You like added that one other yeah. layer and it's like, in your mind, you're like, it's never, you know, it's like, in my mind, it's like never really done. Cause I just think of all the other things yeah. I could have done, but to other people, it's like, you know, it's like once you get a track listing and you kind of add a guitar that kind of 
bleeds into yeah. the other and then you're like and then people are like oh they thought about this and they made an album we're like no i overdubbed yeah, it totally <laughs> you know and it's like these people don't you know people don't really know but those little things like the bruce springsteen yelling one yeah. two three four are the things that make it you once again feel like a human exactly. thing or it becomes when we say album yeah it's like you know that kind of thing you know so so i mean i i appreciate you you know taking the time and like the thing i guess you know before i truly truly let you go so well, i know I we've gone a while it's going. just like yep. <laughs> um but uh just like you know i i can't wait to like hear your new music that i know you've kind of mentioned uh online that you know will be coming so um uh, you know i'm looking forward to that you know um, so with me what's coming up is finally putting out uh this year for the fall wheels are in motion (laughs) Uh, i guess i can't get too specific but um yeah putting out my record which is the songs that would have been it's eight of the songs that would have been on this next final ren's record which is now deep sixed and then i had to write when that sort of played out a year and a half ago it's very complicated and I guess, yeah, I don't want to go into it, but it played out over the course of three years and then sort of it, the, the other guy's record sort of, I found out like a year and a half ago and whatever. So I had to write a couple other songs last summer, summer of 21. So that all was coming out in the fall. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, do you know, um, you don't have to have an answer for this. Do you know what name it'll be under? Or I guess I'll find out in the I fall. Still... <laughs> well, I'm just <laughs> laughing because of this, because of what we just talked about for the last hour or whatever, is now when you finally hear it, and I'll get you a copy or, you know, even way beforehand, uh, now you'll hear a couple things that are from the Springsteen record. Even if originally it wasn't the plan, like I've got, I had Kevin do it on piano. It was one of the things I had to go back and replace, but I got a an auto harp, a zither, basically doing the zing, zing that starts off that New York City serenade. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple other things that are sort of like that. Uh, so, shoot, I forgot what I was saying, but it will... Oh, the, the project name. I actually haven't chosen one. I've got a huge list on in my Evernote that I do all my daily notes and stuff in. Um, I've got one or two. I have to decide in like the next month or so because stuff's going off to mastering yeah. and whatever. So it actually, it's not... Yeah, that point of no return on yeah, projects. Yeah, it's not so <laughs> much that it's a secret, but it's also that I haven't even chosen one uh, officially. Well, yeah, I always feel like the hardest thing for me, which sounds like uh, it's so silly, it's like every time... I record a record trying to name the record and it's like, I should know I've yeah. written these songs. Like why can't I? And sometimes it comes to me, but it always feels like with an EP or something, I have like a clever yeah. name. Oh, with the full length, I'm like, I don't know the fourth one. Yeah. I, I don't, you I know, hate, you know, so, so I, I feel, yeah. I feel for you. For I that. hate that. <laughs> it's why I, I always say you never write choruses. I mean, I write what I picture as a chorus, yeah. but I often don't repeat the words because I hate settling down on one. Baby, we were born to run. I mean, I have them, but not, not really. Same thing with titles and the song titles. 
do you ever do the thing where like especially if you're doing a if it's a long recording or project or whatever so you call yeah. it like punk rocker in f minor or whatever and then yeah. like a week before it goes to mastering or something you're like it's called bloomsday ox or something and then when someone just like hey, could you play that bloomsday ox song you're like i I'm sorry, I don't know which one that is. And the set list says yeah, rocker in yeah. F minor or whatever you know it as. Yeah. 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 Our the guitarist in uh my band, like he's like the other kind of we're fifty fifty yeah. split singing. Um and so I always feel like he kinda will do it more on his song. Sometimes I'll be like, I don't know, the song's called Teeth. You know, like it's just like you know, it's like and I, I usually will kinda stick closer right. to that. So I have this thing where I'm like, I don't know, it worked for Death Leopard. Right. <laughs> um so just like it's called hysteria. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh you know, and then he'll be like and then it'll be like ambionic. You're like, Why is it ambiotic fluid or something? You know, it's like it's not you know, it's like then you try and overdo it because you're like, Well, we can't call it punk rocker and yeah. F minor, so instead it's it's you know, it's some convoluted yeah. title. You know, um, you know, but it, it's it's like then when you feel like you go the other way with it, you're like, then that feels oh, contrived, yeah, totally. you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess bringing it back to the beginning, it's like, I I wonder if Bruce Springsteen ever had that problem. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. what He certainly simplified his his thing like we were talking about. Um, and maybe it's a good way to wrap up I because you were sort of asking whether Springsteen's still a thing and I think I was I think Born in the USA came out in 83 I think because I know I was in like my first year I think of college and I remember hearing the early singles on the on the radio and I was like man Bruce has lost it (laughs) like because to me it was it was this album and then even going into born to run and then, you know, certainly songs on like, like Badlands and stuff. Um, and when I heard that sort of the, that big snare and the production and all that kind of stuff, I signed off for a long time. I didn't listen to them at all. Even the old stuff in the eighties, I was doing other things, but like, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that record, uh, that's where I sort of got off the, the bosses payroll (laughs) that i've gone back you know like i said yeah yeah uh well maybe it has it led you to like human touch and i went back to those ghost of tom yeah after way after the fact like we all do with some things i don't know it's just uh and we were talking about that before too like that looking back a lot of times i feel like pre-streaming i was always looking back because that's what you could afford like if you didn't have much money, mm-hmm. you couldn't. I always found it a challenge to keep up in any way because I couldn't afford to go out and buy every cool record. So I was usually cheaping out and buying the four-year-old records that were like three bucks a pop. So I was always behind. Yeah. Like I never had. I often didn't have like the newest cool stuff or whatever, you know. And that's <laughs> like obviously not an issue for like our kids and stuff now. Yeah, you can just yeah, get literally. everything. Like anything oh. they can think of <laughs> instantly. Yeah, they could just pull up 4th of July, Ash, Asbury Park, <laughs> Sandy, right now in this moment. Bruce, what what about just calling it but, Sandy? No. no. Yeah. As you adjust the yeah. floppy hat? No. <laughs> 
but I, you know, I, like I said, I super appreciate you yeah. taking the time. This has been a pleasure. Um, and you know, thanks so much. Thank you. And I was, I meant to say before, like, um, and maybe you did and I apologize. It's just been crazy here. Uh, send me a link with your music. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely do that. I'll do okay, that right away. Be awesome. Welcome back. Thanks to Charles for coming on the pod. Like I mentioned in the chat, I can't wait to hear his new post-Renz music in the near future. If I have to promote something for Charles, just go listen to the Renz's 2003 album, The Meadowlands, or maybe even some old Bruce. Next time on the pod, we're talking with Fisher Mays of the band Wishkit about 12 Rods. So more on that next week. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave a comment, and reviews always help. Thanks to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week.